reviewing the scientific literature to answer your questions about gender diversity, this is Classroom Psychology. And now here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello everybody and welcome to Classroom Psychology. I'm your host, Cora. Thank you so very, very much for joining me. As always, it's wonderful to see you. Hop on in here and let's talk about gender diversity and oh my goodness, this time. You know, we've tackled some pretty spicy topics together and this week is no different as we come together to take new questions or comments from public figures, folks who just like commenting on this stuff. Uh, and we take their often confident declarations for the questions that we hope they're intended to be. And we do our best to together review the literature to see if we can't find an answer to that question. And this week, no different. As we come together to answer a question from this time, uh, Olympian Sharon Davies. Now, Sharon Davies is uh, a yeah, former Olympian, a competitive swimmer, represented Great Britain in the Olympics and the European Championships, uh, competed for England in the Commonwealth Games, uh, she attended 12 consecutive Olympic Games, competing in three of them, uh, and she has an MBE. Listen, Sharon Davies is something else. And I was a huge fan of Sharon Davies growing up, right? Uh, I grew up in you know, when Sharon Davies was, was competing for the Olympics, and... You know, I was, I, 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 you know, at 1990s, you know, I was a huge fan of Sharon Davies. And then she started talking about transgender people and I started, you know, my heart started to sink in the Olympic swimming pool is social discourse. Ugh. Anyway, here is Sharon Davies talking to LBC um, in a recent interview. Very interesting stuff. Here is Sharon Davies. You know, this has all about, been about fairness for female athletes. There are 17 peer-reviewed studies in the world and every single one of those says we cannot mitigate against male puberty advantage. Something like cycling, there's 13, 14% difference between female and male performance, which is why we have female and male races, right? We have different races for those different categories because we are different, physiologically different people. So a transgender woman is a trans-identifying male. So we're saying that males then should be allowed to raise females, which gives them this massive biological advantage, which was really unfair. Now, it doesn't work the other way. So trans-identifying males, biological females going into men's races have no impact whatsoever. So men have no problem with it whatsoever. However, in the women's races, we're expected to move over and enable people to come in with this physical advantage and just have no problem with it. Thanks so much to Sharon Davies for such an interesting question posed, as they often are, in the form of confident declaration. But we will take it for the question we hope it was intended to be, and we'll do our best to see if we can't find an answer. The question here is, I think, the question here is, is quite tricky to answer to begin with, right? Because we're not, we're going to talk at cross purposes. Sharon Davies, it seems... Uh, if I might be so bold, seems to suggest that transgender women are fundamentally men, right? Are uh, males. Trans-identified males is a is a bit of a buzzword among sort of more gender-critical communities uh, to describe transgender women and or avoid describing transgender women as women. So we're going to try to kind of uh, take Sharon Davies's kind of question here from her perspective and try to see. You know, ha let's have a look at the research to begin with. Do transgender women 
have a competitive advantage over cisgender women in competitive sport. Now, there's obviously, this is a huge question, and I don't know what we'll do to try to answer it. I know we're reviewing the literature, I'm reviewing it now, but but we're not really talking about a single thing, right? When we're talking about sort of competitive competition generally, like your, your local sports club, should transgender women be included? Do they have that much of a competitive advantage that they shouldn't be allowed in to, you know, to women's sport generally? Or in kind of collegiate level sport, like in the US, college sport is quite a huge thing. Uh, and it's very competitive and there's a lot of money that changes hands. So do transgender women have an advantage in collegiate sport? We can see that, you know, when it comes to swimming, this whole thing was kicked up by transgender woman Leah Thomas, who was competing in female swimming events in the US at, I think, a collegiate level. Uh, so pretty competitive and, uh, you know, didn't really matter what she did, I think. But, but the media uh, kicked up a storm around it. I think this is why this is happening uh, so much right now. So then we have the Olympic level, right? At extreme, because, you know, for sure, if transgender women don't have a competitive advantage generally, but they do because of the way in which bodies respond to hormones at the elite level, then that's important. Or vice versa. You know, if there is a competitive advantage in in the, the, the low end of things, but there isn't at Olympic level, then that makes a difference for how we shape policy, right? But regardless, we are going to run into a challenge here because even if transgender women have something of a competitive advantage, we're already kind of creating a problematic context by saying, well, that's a kind of competitive advantage that we're not comfortable with. Lots of women have competitive advantages over other women by virtue of their genetic heritage, right? Long legs make you good at sprinting and good at high jumping. They make you really bad at being a jockey, I would imagine. And so, but we don't ban folks who have a certain leg length from competition because we consider that advantage, that genetic advantage to be, largely genetic advantage, to be like, okay, because the people who hold that advantage are considered women, right? And so the reason why this is a problem for folks, I think, is fundamentally because they don't see transgender women as a kind of woman in the world and therefore see any advantage that's conferred by their kind of transgender heritage as unwelcome here or unfair because they're not really women. Uh, that's where we run into. So we have to hold that bit, that bit of the argument. We've just got to hold that in the back of our minds for a minute and try to treat this as we always do with the greatest of generosity and see if we can't find an answer. Do transgender women have a competitive advantage and should they be included in women's sport? Now, of course, trans guys are like, hey, what about us? Uh, don't worry, we're going to have a look at, at trans guys too, um, though I think the sort of public discourse is focused on trans women, of course, as it often is. Let's see if we can't find an answer. Now, to start with, the history of uh, transgender participation in sport is really interesting, particularly at the elite level. Um, and happily, Avalos, uh, Kibler, Monk Turner uh, in 2022 published a really nice, uh, their work is about uh, social media users' perspectives on transgender Olympic athletes. Um, but they review the history really nicely in their introduction, which is helpful here. 
So it, uh, history kind of starts with uh, uh, Rene Richards, I think. Um, one of the earliest high-profile transgender athletes around um, already had a promising tennis career in, in men's tennis, uh, but Richards underwent gender reassignment in 1975 um, and started playing in women's tournaments. And, uh, of course, you know, her doing that created a bit of a media frenzy. Um, and after her, like, beginning to do that, uh, the Women's Tennis Association and the United States Tennis Association withdrew their support for the US Open. Um, and, like, 25 out of the 32 women in there pulled out of the, out of the tournament. Now, as a consequence of this, uh, the 1968 Olympic Games started using bar body testing. Now, that essentially is designed to kind of identify people who have the se a second X chromosome or not, I think, as far as I can tell. Um, and it didn't confirm any cases of transgender athletes. Instead, what it did was reveal androgen insensitivity syndrome, uh, which is a condition in which people have like both X and Y chromosomes, but their bodies are resistant to the androgens that are, or insensitive to the androgens that are produced. And so they develop as typically female, even though they have an XY chromosomes. Um, so a lot of these folks who had to test on the bar test weren't aware that they had androgen sensitivity syndrome and were kind of outed by uh, this bar body test. Now, really interestingly, Richards, um, Rene Richards took uh, this, took the, the US Open, I think, uh, took the United States Tennis Association, who had withdrawn, withdrawn their support for the US Open. She took them to court. And she took them to the uh, highest court in the US, the Supreme Court, um, and won. Basically, she was declared legally female uh, and was declared that she was permitted to compete uh, in, and she did compete in the 1977 US Open uh, as a woman, uh, reaching the doubles semi final, uh, and went on to retire, I think, a few years later. Now, this kind of sent the sort of bar testing into, you know, became increasingly controversial. And the International Olympics Committee uh, created the Stockholm Consensus, which then like stopped bar testing and permitted transgender athletes to compete in the Summer Olympics if they undergo surgery, which again is itself pretty controversial and later was withdrawn. And if they engaged in hormone treatment, and if they had their sex conferred by the appropriate authorities in their sort of home country. Um, but it was only a requirement for male to female athletes, not for male, female to male athletes, of course, as it is often the case here. Um, and the Stockholm consensus uh, stuck around for a long time. Uh, 2003, then, uh, a committee convened by the International Olympic Committee. Because until 2004, the IOC hadn't allowed transgender athletes to participate in the Olympic Games at all. Um, and in 2003, they created a, a, a committee to try and understand the 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 medicine here and to try and understand in what circumstances could transgender athletes compete. And they created three conditions. The first being they must have on, undergone uh, surgery. 
The second is that they must have legal recognition of their gender. And the third is that they must have undergone hormone therapy for appropriate for an appropriate length of time, at least two years. Now, with that, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, allowed transgender athletes to participate in the Olympic Games from 2004 onwards. Now, interestingly, nobody did. As far as we can tell, uh, there have been no uh, Olympians except one uh, who was openly transgender in 2021. And um, even though, you know, in 2015, the IOC modified the guidelines uh, to not require surgery because you know, requiring surgery and otherwise healthy individuals might be inconsistent with developing legislation and notions of human rights, which, yeah, of course, um, and yet required it set that, you know, they're the they must declare their gender for at least four years and not change their assertion uh, they must demonstrate testosterone levels of less than 10 nanomoles nanomoles per liter for at least a year prior to competition and throughout the period of eligibility um although again athletes who transition from female to male were allowed to compete without restriction um right again these are put into effect for the 2016 Rio Olympics, but no openly transgender athletes uh, competed. So this is, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? So we get to a point where with all of the changes that have been, that have taken place to the Stockholm consensus, um, even though it's designed to try to allow transgender athletes to participate and after 2016, it removed the requirement for surgery. Still, no transgender athletes participated in the Olympic Games right up until 2021, when Laurel Hubbard, uh, absolutely awesome trans woman, uh, competed in the 2020 Summer Olympics in weightlifting. Now, this is really interesting. Hubbard became the first out trans woman to compete in the Olympics ever, as far as we can tell. Uh, and she did not compete. She didn't complete her lifts uh, and she won no medals, uh, unfortunately for her. Uh, but she did compete, which is amazing. Now, in 2021, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, released a policy document to try and make the Olympics more inclusive for transgender athletes and for those with sex variations. And we started to go further into kind of increasing acceptance. Now, then something dramatic shifted. It started with World Athletics, as far as I can see. World Athletics uh, basically ruled that transgender women can no longer compete in track and field events uh, internationally. Um, it said that its rules prioritized fairness and an integrity of female competition uh, and the organization's president, Sebastian Coe, said, we will be guided in this by the science around physical performance and male advantage, which will inevitably develop over the coming years. Now, a bunch of others have followed suit. Essentially, the International Cycling Union uh, has banned transgender women uh, who have undergone any male puberty from competing in the female category. Uh, World Rugby announced an outright ban on transgender women and World Aquatics uh, essentially did the same, announcing an open category, but essentially uh, pro prohibiting transgender women from, uh, from competing in female categories. So now we're kind of waiting for the International Olympic Committee to make its call, right? Next Olympics is in 2024. Current Olympic, the International Olympic Committee policy is as it was in a, uh, that permitted Lauren Hubbard, a trans woman, to compete in the weightlifting category in the Summer Olympics uh, three years ago. 
Um, but with the kind of world athletics and, uh, you know, world aquatics, world rugby, the International Cycling Union, all creating these kind of very restrictive transgender uh, competition policies, we're really waiting for the International Olympic Committee to make its call, right? Uh, it's really interesting. And given that Sebastian Coe has kind of commented on this topic, it's in a kind of exclusionary fashion. I wonder what the International Olympic Committee is going to do. So in advance of the IOC's ruling, let's take a look at the evidence here to see if we can't understand, do transgender women retain a physiological advantage post-transition? And then we're going to come to the question of, is that a relevant question to ask? You know, does it matter? Should it matter? Uh, let's take a look. The first thing to say is there's not a lot of literature in this field. We're going to first take a look at a couple of systematic reviews. So there is some, uh, and it is looking particularly at uh, transgender individuals and, and kind of comparing transgender men to transgender women, both pre and post uh, transition. That seems to be like the best research we can find in terms of does like transition hormonally influence physiology to the extent that it might ameliorate any kind of competition problems. Um, and the best uh, systematic review I could find, I think there is another one more recent, we'll come to that, but Jones and colleagues in 2017 conducted a systematic review looking at sport and transgender people, um, and they found really only one experimental study, a bunch of qualitative work in the field, all really interesting stuff. Uh, but there's really only one study that they took a look at, and it's this uh, one experimental study by Goran and Bunk in 2004. And they looked at 19 transgender women and 17 transgender men. And they looked before cross-sex hormone administration and after cross-sex hormone administration after a year. And they took a look at muscle mass. They took a look at hemoglobin. And they took a look at insulin-like growth factor. And the first thing to say here, which is, I think, something we're going to just continue to say all throughout, is that there was massive diversity in these in like muscle area, in hemoglobin, in insulin growth factor, across um, across like men and across women in the sample. This huge diversity and a pretty big overlap. So a lot of women had bigger muscles than a lot of men, uh, although on average, men certainly had bigger muscles than women on average. But there's this massive uh, overlap and there is this massive kind of diversity in in like there's no one way in which people produce uh, testosterone or, in, or estrogen. There's no one way in which bodies respond to those hormones. And when we sort of start to change them through hormone, like through giving people hormones, people's bodies respond in very different ways as well. And what they found was that you know, muscle mass uh, reduces in transgender women who are in the studies, only 19 of them, um, and that there is this huge overlap between the transgender women in the study and the transgender men in the study pre, pre any hormone treatment for either of them. And while the overlap between you know, post-hormone therapy transgender women and pre-hormone therapy transgender men, while that overlap was always there and it increases significantly from the uh, inclusion of hormone therapy, it doesn't go all the way, in inverted commas, like... It's very tricky to kind of say, you know, what, what do we consider to be like, do we consider like full overlap 
So all the transgender women in the sample look almost identical to like uh, pre-treatment transgender men in the sample hormonally. Um, it's a really interesting, it, it doesn't, it seem, do that. It doesn't go all the way. Uh, the average transgender woman's muscle size is still a little bit bigger than the average transgender man's before hormone therapy for him and after hormone therapy for her. Now, Nahon and colleagues in uh, 2021 conducted a more recent systematic review and meta-analysis on sports and performance in the transgender population. They're very. This is a very cool study. They found 21 articles and they looked at all kinds of things, whether it be body composition, muscle strength, hematological parameters, including hemoglobin and hematocrit in trans women. Um, and they all dropped. Across these 21 studies, they found that they all dropped as a consequence of hormone therapy. Now, the challenge is how much is enough, right? How much is enough? Given that in the sort of typical female population, hormone levels are pretty wide ranging. And, you know, for the transgender women in, in most of these studies, their testosterone levels are lower than the natal female population. And they still maintain some level of muscle strength. But, you know, there's a huge overlap between the typical female population and the transgender population. Like, what is enough? How much would we consider enough to to erode or completely like uh, completely undo any inadverted commas advantage. Really difficult. And again, you know, this big systematic review, while they identify there are these you know, big drops, there's actually not a lot of studies that compare transgender women to the cisgender female population. Usually they're compared to cisgender men in the research. And so, I mean, in a sense, we just don't know. But the authors say this, they say that the confirmed findings, together with the results of female to male transgender folk and the meta-analysis in the study, promote a greater scientific basis regarding the inclusion of the transgender population in sports, especially Olympic. But they highlight the lack of studies comparing transgender people with control groups of their target gender, and that's a big limiting factor in the analysis. So while they're saying, yeah, there is this sort of significant drop in these important factors, how much is enough for this not to be arbitrary? I don't know that there is an enough for this not to be arbitrary because the range of muscle mass, the range of hemoglobin, the range of testosterone even, and how bodies respond to all of these things are dramatically different for women just in the female population you know, not even considering transgender women, there's just this huge range in the population. So to what extent do transgender women have to drop in order, you know, in these things in order to be considered competitive? There's no really easy way to answer because they're already overlapping significantly from the study outset, even before hormone therapy, and that overlap only grows after it. Now, the problem with these studies is that they're looking also at the transgender population en masse. Now, I don't know about you, but I am no Olympic athlete. And I'm not sure that I, you know, the results of how my body responds to estrogen and the lack of testosterone is really a good uh, representation of how an Olympian's body might respond to those same things. So we need some studies that are looking at specifically athletes and ideally elite athletes. 
There are, as far as I can find, three in recent years that have looked at this. One, the first is from Harper. She looked at race times for transgender athletes in the Journal of Sporting Cultures and Identities. And she basically looked at eight UK athletes and looked at their running times. Now, none of these eight is truly an elite runner. Um, they're not world-class, but they are nonetheless athletes. And she looked, I mean, she was saying, listen, this is incredibly difficult to get people, right? It's very difficult to participate in these studies because there aren't many elite level transgender athletes around, right? Apart from anything, they get marginalized out of competing. There just aren't very many. She was saying, listen, it took us seven years and we amassed data from only eight participants, but it's still one of the best thing, best studies I could find that looks at like running times in transgender participants pre and post hormone therapy. These authors did something interesting. They basically grabbed, they grabbed, <laughs> they managed to get participation very slowly from eight participants who measured their running times pre and post transition. Now, bearing in mind, these are not elite runners by any means, but this is, they are kind of athletes. They were runners. I don't think these were professional athletes or anything, but they were at least runners. Now, the they took it, they tried to use a method of taking into account participants' age and gender. And they came up with an age grading score. So they basically took, it's essentially a score given to people based on their runtime and the kind of fastest runtime of anyone of that age ever and gender ever. And they compared them to like non-transgender um, men before transition and they compared them to non-transgender women after transition. Um, and they got age grading. And if Effectively, what they found was that participants, almost all of them, except one who seemed to do pretty well post-transition compared to pre-transition, all of them dropped their, their running times. One of them kept pretty good running times regardless, but um, all of them otherwise uh, dropped their running times significantly. And if you take a look at their age grading, their age grading wasn't significantly different pre and post transition, meaning that they were comparable to the same aged women post-transition as they were to the same aged men pre-transition. Super interesting, super relevant, but again, you only eight participants in the study. It's quite small. It's not going to be a representative sample uh, because you know most people won't come out and these folk were open to being measured and studied in this way. Um, but it's the first kind of sense of like actual athletes potentially i mean athletes might be a bit generous but at least runners you know people who ran um, and a sense of how their running times changed as a consequence of transition they changed significantly but they just entered into the same kind of state like they were comparable to women of the same age after transition in the same way that they were comparable to people of the same age before transition so i.e if they were like running extremely fast, like they had a low, uh, a low age graded score pre-transition, then they also had the same low age graded score, but compared to a different gender post-transition, which is really, really important. I say consistent across like all of their times uh, and across different like lengths uh, from 5k to 10k to half marathon to full marathon. Um, and they did find that some folks kind of 
got better after transition, but and some folks got worse after transition compared to like women for the first time rather than compared to men pre-transition. Um, and they got you know, their their sort of age graded score either went up or went down in a couple of examples. And um, but those changes uh, mirrored changes in their training habits, which is you know makes perfect sense. They trained less after transition, their age grading age grading went down. Or they train more after transition, their age grading went up, but otherwise they were pretty much equivalent, which is really interesting, right? So they find that essentially transition does basically what you would expect it to do to make uh, runners who were you know comparable to men beforehand, comparable to women after. But again, you know, this is only in long distance running. And interestingly, you know, some of the sort of muscle mass index stuff might, you know, given that transgender women have this sort of higher muscle mass still after transition, it doesn't like doesn't uh, make that directly comparable to like the average cisgender woman necessarily, in which case, you know, maybe shorter distance running that might re maintain more of an advantage. The authors highlight here. All right, two studies to go. And here's where things get really interesting. So Christina Roberts, Dr. Christina Roberts did a really interesting piece of work. If you think about it, right, let's say we've run into this problem exactly like our preceding author uh, Harper ran into, right? There just aren't any, there just aren't any athletes. <laughs> like, you know, transgender athletes is one of the most kind of, they're one of the most difficult groups to find because they stay so secret in order to stay safe and they're so marginalized in athletics and we're talking about olympic athletes or or at least elite athletics there are very very few to reach out to and even fewer who are willing to participate in research so we have a problem here right can't get them into research so we can't answer the question very easily but there is a group here that we could use to answer this question and that is like military personnel, right? And there is a really interesting pair of studies. The first is from Christina Roberts. Effect of gender-affirming hormones on athletic performance in trans women and trans men. Implications for sporting organizations and legislators. Now, Christina looked at uh, Air Force service people in the United States Air Force. And of course, these folks do Things like they do the number of sit-ups they can do in a minute, they do the number of push-ups they can do in a minute, and they do their running time over one and a half miles. And they, like, that's part of their fitness regime. And so they are akin to, like, more elite athletes, right? They have to be pretty physically fit. And they have consistent stats on, like, on their times in these areas, right? And on their number of sit-ups and push-ups in a minute. And we can get data on those who are transgender and look pre and post hormone uh, therapy for those individuals and look at how their times and like numbers of sit ups and push ups in a minute and their running time over a mile and a half changes over time. Now, Christina Roberts found something really interesting and it sort of took off. So, I've been uh, emailing with Christina Roberts because I'm curious about what happened here. Uh, her study basically found this very interesting finding. 
So she looked at transgender women and transgender men on those three areas in particular, like the number of sit-ups they can do in a minute, the number of push-ups they can do in a minute, and then and the distance, like the uh, the time it takes them to run a mile and a half. And she was able to capt- capture both like trans men and trans women and cisgender military personnel. Uh, and she was able to capture people before transition uh, up and you know, one year after transition, two years after transition and up to two and a half years post-transition, post like the initiation of hormones. And uh, from there, she was able to kind of compare like transgender men to cisgender Air Force personnel, male Air Force personnel. And she was able to compare transgender women to cisgender female Air Force personnel and identify do like two years of taking feminizing hormones reduce like the ability of transgender female uh, like personnel in the U.S. Air Force to female levels, like to cisgender female levels. Really interesting study. Now, here's where things get super interesting. I kind of went a bit, I sort of lost my mind. So participants were 26.2 years old on average, quite young. And prior to gender-affirming hormones, transgender women performed 31% more push-ups and 15% more sit-ups in a minute and ran one and a half miles, 21% faster than their female counterparts. So transgender women were a good deal faster and a good deal stronger than their cisgender female counterparts before hormone replacement therapy. Now, after two years of taking feminizing hormones, the push-up and sit-up differences disappeared, but transgender women were still 12% faster. Now, this statistic, this 12% statistic got taken up all over the place. 156 news outlets picked up this article and I see that 12% statistic all over the place. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating to know, you know, but it's not wildly, you know, not wildly out of touch with all the work that we've seen so far, right? Our preceding author was saying, you know, for long distance running like half marathons, uh, maybe transgender women are you know, much more like their cisgender counterparts, but actually in shorter distances, maybe their stronger legs, maybe their bigger muscle mass makes them a bit quicker. So it's not unreasonable here, right? Uh, that they hypothesize that might be the case and this author found it. And that's certainly Christina's explanation is that, you know, uh, a female, um, a, a sort of a male puberty in adolescence leads to a certain kind of cardiovascular changes and muscle uh, distribution changes, which are don't get undone entirely by hormone replacement therapy. And so they retain some advantage in their running times. But I took a look at this study in some detail. I was really curious about like the stages of change over time. And I sort of graphed the data and I looked at the data that had been graphed by Christina. And Christina is so brilliant. Like she's very kindly sent me her data and she very kindly sent me her um, like some graphs, which I thought was really, really interesting and really helpful. Um, And she found that there was this kind of this change over time in the number of sit ups that people can do in a minute. And it came down in a fairly linear fashion it sort of changed it changed very little to begin with in the first year and then it changed pretty dramatically in the second year of hormone replacement therapy and but overall it's fairly linearly kind of deteriorating right transgender women getting much worse at sit-ups until by the time you get to the end of the two 
plus years, like bigger, greater than two years on hormone replacement therapy, they were basically within the the kind of female range, if you like, on how many sit-ups they could do in a minute. And the same for push-ups. And it looks like for the first couple of years, it's the same for running. But when you look at the last stage, that kind of two plus years stage, this last time point, transgender women seemed to, on average, get a good dose faster, which meant that overall they retained a kind of 12% advantage. But it's unusual. This last data point is really weird. And what's interesting is that, you know, Christina's work highlights that for some participants, they continue on that trend when they just continue to deteriorate as you'd expect. And they get far closer to sort of typical cisgender female counterparts times or, you know, times, yeah, in in terms of how fast they can run a mile and a half. And for some participants, they got a lot quicker, a lot quicker on that last beat, on that last two plus years. And I don't think we can really explain it. I took a look at the original data and honestly, it's quite difficult to understand. One of the things that basically the, the, the original data is very real world and it's very messy as a consequence, right? It's really difficult to understand and you have to do quite a lot of cleaning uh, in order to kind of get the data into any sort of usable format. Um, and Christina basically excluded 147 participants, often because they didn't have pre-baseline, like baseline measures of of times or, or sort of sit-ups or, or push-up kind of, they didn't have baseline measures. So they had nothing to compare it to. And so they excluded 147 participants, the research group, and that left only 48 transgender women in the research. So it actually, they excluded quite a lot of participants. And so it's quite difficult to know, is this last time point really representative? I got to say that the something interesting is happening in this data, and I don't exactly know what it is, but the standard deviation, the variance of that last point is like the range of how people respond to hormones two plus years seems to diverge quite significantly. Some people get a lot quicker in their times and some people get as expected a bit slower in their times over time. And it might be a consequence of training habits of this group. It might be that you know this group featured a good, a good few people who were training longer and harder after transition for whatever reason. It's difficult to know exactly what's going on. But thankfully, we have the work of Ciccarelli, who came a year later. Now, Ciccarelli, Adam, Arendt, and Smolly in 2022, transitioning uh, when, uh, when can transgender, fit transitioning, they call it, fit transitioning. When can transgender airmen fitness test in their affirmed gender? Now, they weren't particularly looking at, like, uh, sports particularly, but they were looking at the challenge of, like, Post-transition, if transgender women, like at some stage in transition, transgender women, they're going to be, they need to stop being compared to cisgender men in order to kind of, like, because they've got to pass their fitness tests, right? And if they're continuing to be compared to transgender men and they their fitness gets, like, their times get lower because of like transition because of the effect of hormones, then eventually they might start to be considered no longer fit for duty, even though they are, but they're being compared to the wrong gendered group, right? They need to be compared to women. And that's what Ciccarelli was really interested in trying to identify when is the right time to do it. 
Now, they were able to include 228 transgender women. And again, from the US Air Force data. Really, really interesting. But of course, they had more data to play with because they started later. So they took a look at, uh, you know, while the first data set from Roberts only had 47, these guys had 228 trans women in the study. And what did they find? Now, again, right at the start, these guys found that 50% of the cisgender population have overlap in events, right? So half of the, you know, 50% of the cisgender populations were overlapping. There isn't a strong, like there is a difference on average between men and women here, but it, there is a huge overlap between them anyway. So that's the first thing to take into account. Now, these authors had more data to play with, right? So not only in terms of more participants, but they had more data like over time. So they were able to look up to four years after the start of hormone therapy and the effects on performance. And they found that after two years, the times uh, of like how long it took for people to run a mile and a half were comparable. They weren't significantly different between transgender women and their cisgender counterparts. And after four years, the sit-up events also lost significant differences. So the number of sit-ups that a transgender woman can do is not significantly different to the number of sit-ups that a cisgender woman could do in the US Air Force after two years of hormone, after four years, sorry, of hormone therapy. Now, the only thing is that push-ups never stopped demonstrating a significant difference, which is different to Roberts's uh, work, right? Again, different, again, uh, finding that uh, push-ups never stopped demonstrating a significant difference. So these participants, after four years of hormone therapy, were still able to do, on average, more push-ups than their uh, cisgender counterparts. That's really difficult to interpret, right? And beyond that, here's where things get really interesting, right? Because, you know, what we find, if you look in the detail of the data, which the authors did, they were saying that the distinction, like the changes for an individual are remarkably individual, right? How quickly people's endurance or strength changes, it's very different for an individual, right? Some people change very quickly and some people change much more slowly. And they recommend that, you know, uh, ultimately, for most transgender female participants, right, transgender women, they should be compared to female benchmarks at two years because otherwise they're, you know, for a good chunk of transgender women, they are not going to be able to meet the male benchmark, not because of fitness, but because the hormones have changed their fitness, have changed their kind of strength and endurance as a consequence of the changes wrought by the hormones. So, from these studies, you can see that this is a bit of a tricky situation, right? When we try and answer Sharon Davies's question, we find that uh, it's virtually impossible to say. I mean, if we take the transgender population en masse, not sportsmen and women or people, we find that, yeah, uh, hormone therapy, a lack of testosterone changes the endurance and strength of transgender women. Does it bring it in, in fit people, does it bring it down within the average for women? Well, in most cases, it seems yes, but maybe not all. It looks like transgender women do retain a greater muscle mass and that seems to advantage them in strength, but maybe not in long distance running and, and maybe not even over a mile and a half of running. 
but it's not absolutely clear. And the reason it's not absolutely clear is because there's so much individual difference. The variation in you know women or in men or in people generally and their fitness, their strength, their muscle mass, their you know the length of their legs, their you know how their body produces or responds to androgens and how their body like is able to like communicate oxygen around their body, how their muscles respond to it. It's all like very different for individual people. I can see Sharon Davies's point here. I can see that she's saying, listen, you know, transgender women might retain some level of advantage as a consequence of like the experience of of androgens during puberty. Potentially for those folk, maybe they retain some level of advantage, but it's nowhere near clear. And actually, we see that maybe these kind of policies which are designed to kind of exclude transgender women from female competition create this kind of context where you know, we find from Avalos's work and colleagues, really interesting, uh, we find from you know, the qualitative research in this field, uh, there's Zhang and colleagues in 2023, uh, and there's Goldback and colleagues in 2022. I think we find from this work that you know, the context for the transgender population in, in elite sport is so bad, right? It's so discriminatory that people are dissuaded from participating and it shapes public opinion and it creates what I would suggest is a bit of a nightmare for the transgender population. It certainly doesn't create a very welcoming context. And it seems that these kind of exclusionary policies may well be quite I don't know. They seem to be overbearing and like knee jerk and not particularly like there's definitely no conclusive evidence to suggest that transgender women retain a strong competitive advantage. And moreover, competitive advantage is what happens in sport, right? People are better or worse than other people at things. Folks who are amazing sprinters have big muscle mass. Their bodies respond to training better, potentially. Who knows? But they're not they're not runners because they're eight foot tall. They're not runners because they're five foot five, right? They're runners because they have long legs, they have strong muscular power, and they can burst a huge amount of power in the short distance. Now, people who are really good at other sports have longer legs or shorter legs and they're good at different things because of the virtue of different qualities of their body. So like Jones et al. says, yeah, what kind of arbitrariness here are we willing to accept, right? It's always going to be arbitrary where we draw this line. And the challenge here from Sharon Davies is that, you know, it's revealed in her question. Transgender women are trans-identified males, she says. She tries to position transgender women as effectively, essentially, men who are entering into female competition and they shouldn't be there. That's the foundation of the question, is this kind of question of do we consider transgender women to be women? And therefore, do we think of this kind of, if they do retain some advantage to kind of their legacy, their genetic heritage, you know, their sort of their how their body has responded in adolescence to the presence of and how it has produced androgens, 
right? If we don't see them as women, then we are going to see that advantage as unwelcome here. Certainly, it isn't evidence of like this huge and overriding advantage. That's clearly not what's happening here. And while there might be some advantage still here, do we consider that advantage to be unwelcome when there is other kinds of advantage in the cisgender population which we don't consider unwelcome, which we're fully happy to see, right? We see people who have longer legs jump the high jump, but we don't consider people over six feet tall to be no longer women, right? If you're over six foot, sorry, you're not considered a woman and you're not allowed to compete in female competition. But we do do that with this, what looks like quite minor advantage in in like muscle strength of transgender women because we don't see them as women. Bearing in mind that the only transgender Olympian that there has ever been has not won any medals. She didn't win any medals. She didn't beat cisgender women in the competition because while she might have had some kind of advantage from like from her own kind of adolescent heritage that will have been largely kind of overwritten by hormone replacement therapy but it doesn't make her somehow superhuman right doesn't make us somehow superhuman the fact that you know i can't jump into female competition and somehow win there right the fact that i was like the fact that i i had a male puberty doesn't somehow make me superhuman right and to think that it does, I think, might be a bit sexist, right? Certainly, we need a lot more research in this field. And certainly, we need more transgender Olympians so that we can do that research. And I think excluding transgender people from, like, female categories in sporting events and from the Olympics, potentially, I don't think the evidence here supports that move, and the authors in this field seem to suggest the same. I think Goran and Bunk, though, put it best. They said that in real life, there will always be an element of arbitrariness in the drawing of competitive lines. Different individuals are born with and develop postnatally different potentials. The capriciousness of genetics and postnatal development will make any form of competition intrinsically unfair at some level. Therefore, depending on the levels of arbitrariness one wants to accept, it is justifiable that transgender women compete with other women following transition. The up-to-date research seems to suggest, at least, that banning transgender women from all female category sporting events is an overreaction, and the evidence does not currently support such a ban. Certainly not if we want to create a sporting world where everyone, everyone can find a place to belong. Thanks so very much for joining me. This is Classroom Psychology. You are very, very welcome here. And I look forward to seeing you as always in the next one. 